we're not going to have a concordant sermon on all the places where God says you should ought to be meek. I use that expression. I heard it many, many years ago from David John Hill, who talked to the ministry at one point in a conference, I don't remember where, about you should ought to sermons. You should ought to sermons, he meant to describe those where it says you should ought to be good, you should ought to be righteous, you should ought to be whatever you might pick out of the air as the subject of the day. Or we had some you should not ought to sermons as well. You should not ought to do this and you should not ought to do that. I gave a sermon last week on 5.4 of Matthew, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted, and talked the whole day about mourning, but I mentioned one minor subject in passing, and it seems some never heard anything else because they heard maybe we should not ought to do this or maybe should not ought to do that, and that bobs our cork more than anything else, it seems, when something might touch us or might touch our conduct. It's like with a kid, you know, you might say, would you like some ice cream? Uh, we all know the answer to that. But then you go on to say, before we have any ice cream, we're going to clean the house, and you're going to clean your room, and you're going to fix, you know, clean the bathroom or whatever. You could go on and on and describe things we're going to do. The kid never heard a word you said because everything after ice cream went up in the air somewhere. Didn't go into the head, went out the ear, went right on through or whatever. And it doesn't matter in what order you put it. If you describe how we're going to clean the room, how we're going to clean the bathroom, how you're going to pick up your toys and go through all that, and then say, and after we're done with that, we'll have ice cream. Then they quickly forget everything else you just said, and all they heard was ice cream at the end. So whenever you said ice cream and either blotted out everything that had been said or it blotted out everything you were about to say because ice cream was the operative word. And we tend to be that way. Something we really want or something we might not want is all we hear sometimes. Now, I don't want to make this into a you should oughta or you should not oughta sermon. I want us to understand some whys and wherefores, some reasons why certain things are and have to be, and what God might be doing. Now, let's back off from Matthew 5 just a moment. We've gone through so far four verses, and we talked in two sermons about being poor in spirit, showing that it means that we need to recognize our spiritual poverty in comparison to the great beings who have spiritual riches in heaven. The comparison is not among ourselves, because that is not wise, but it's between us and those who truly have spiritual riches. And in making that comparison, obviously we see, or should see, our comparative poverty that we lack so much but in order to understand where we need to be 
there is something that has to be added. And I went over this in passing. But in, or, but in analyzing the structure of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, of this teaching that Christ gave to his disciples to become apostles, who were to be the founders of the New Testament church, of which we are a part today, we need to understand how he organized it in order to really grasp the full message that is here. What does he address here? Now, we understand, if we think about the so-called Sermon on the Mount, that he talked about the law and raised it to a different level, made some changes in how it was to be approached. Those things we might bring to mind when you mention this sermon. But what did he address first? He didn't address the law. He didn't address conduct. He didn't address habits. He didn't address traditions. He didn't address truth or error, uh, specifically as opposed to one way of life, uh, comparing it to the other way of life, Satan's, man's, or God's. He didn't address those things at all. What is it that he addressed? Attitude. Everything he addresses in the first, uh, oh, let's see, at least the first 12 verses has to do with nothing, basically, but attitude. Attitude about various things. <clears throat> attitude toward our spiritual wealth or lack thereof is the first thing. Attitude about life. Somebody says, well, all I heard was we ought to be sad all the time. Not what I was driving at at all. Yes, we should mourn the conditions of the world. We should mourn our spiritual poverty because anyone who is in physical poverty generally mourns that, don't they? They think a lot about how do I get ahead? How do I pay the bills? How do I make ends meet? Some of these expressions we have when we are barely making it, let's say, financially. So that is a physical poverty that is very difficult for people to deal with, partly because of their own habits, either their work habits or their management habits or whatever. But for one reason or another, they can't make ends meet, can't pay the bills or have difficulty doing so. So they think about their circumstance and their poverty a great deal. In some cases, people manage it well. In some cases, they just simply blow it and have no idea where it went. It just gone. Vamoosed. Paycheck. Where is it? It's gone. Wouldn't it be terrible for us to put in the effort we're putting in and live the life we're living and then look around someday and say, what happened to the paycheck? You know, it's time for the payoff. It's time for the resurrection. It's time to be given eternal life and wealth and health and no pain and all the things that we might desire here on this earth but have a very elusive time trying to track down. We might look at it and say, what happened? I didn't rise. Where's the payoff? I've been working all this time for a payoff. And somebody else got paid and I didn't. 
I do not want to be in that circumstance, and I don't think you do either. This is too hard. It's too difficult to go through and then not achieve what we're here to achieve. I don't want us to miss out at all. So we need to recognize if we are going to accomplish anything in reality, we have to get real about the way things really are, don't we? If you're going to pay the bills, you have to get real about finding a job. You have to get real about working for your employer in such a way that it pays him to have you there and therefore pays you to be there. You have to get real about responsibility. If you don't get real about it, you'll either A, never find a job, or not hold the one you have. And it'll be your own fault. That employer did not hire you to fail. He did not hire you to screw up. He hired you to be productive in his company. And you're there so that you might produce, so that you might share in that production by having a paycheck to take home. Now, there are some promises attached here to these attitudes. Verse 3 is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, a promise of comfort. Blessed are the meek, verse 5, where we're headed today, for they shall inherit the earth. People today would like to have an inheritance when their parents die. Well, our parent isn't going to die, but he's promised us that we will inherit the earth if what? If we die. That is, if we crucify the self. If we get rid of pride and vanity and ego and all of those things which keep us from being spiritually wealthy. You see, on a physical job, there are things that can hold you back from becoming wealthy. Laziness, lack of education or ignorance, uh, poor work habits, lack of concentration, irresponsibility, putting yourself ahead of the job, or any number of things can create a situation where you are unproductive and therefore not worth keeping. But if we will get rid of self and become meek and humble, God says we will inherit the earth. Now what are people out here trying to do? They're trying to earn the whole world. They're trying to be wealthy in the things of this world, but they're going about it through pride, ego, vanity, self, stepping on the other fellow, dog eat dog, whatever. That's the way they're going about it. And they're going to have difficulty inheriting the whole earth, aren't they? Not going to happen. We have a groups, actually, of people behind the scenes right now who are trying to take control and rule of the world and are, for a short time, going to succeed. The tools they are using are selfishness, vanity, ego, self-centeredness, and all of the carnal, human, fleshly ways of going about something. They will stomp to death and kill anyone who stands in their path. So murder, 
thievery. These are acceptable because of the means that they have in mind, or the, the ultimate goal they have in mind, so the means to them don't matter. They can do anything, and they will, to subjugate this earth to their wills and their wishes. We have a different way of going about inheriting the earth, and we do it through meekness, humility, self-sacrifice, and giving rather than the other way. So we're, we're really seeking, ultimately, maybe this is a crude way of putting it, but we're seeking the same thing those people behind the scenes are who want to establish a new world order. We're going about it with a totally different mythology. I didn't say mythology, I said mythology. We're approaching it differently. But we've been promised that we would be kings and priests and reign on earth. They are going to be despotic, they're going to be autocratic, they're going to be dictatorial. You will or you will die. You'll do it our way or else is their approach. Now, our Father in heaven and our elder brother ultimately say the same thing. You will bow to us or you will go into a lake of fire. There simply is no other way to resolve the situation. So those who will be meek and humble and bow before God will inherit the earth. Those who are vain and egocentric and decide to go with the beast will for a very short time think they have inherited the earth and then the rug will be pulled out because there was a will that has been written that they didn't know about. Well, that always sneaks up or sometimes sneaks up on the kids when dad dies. They thought they had dad's latest will, but dad wrote another one, and dad changed things. So there was a will they didn't know about, a purpose they didn't know about, and they wind up losing it all because of a different will and purpose that they were totally unaware of. And that's going to happen to this world. They will see the will of the beast. They won't recognize it as Satan's will or of this world's will. They will be deceived into thinking it is God's will. And they're going to be awfully surprised when they find he has a totally different will written and it doesn't have the same conditions that they were looking for. So if we are to truly inherit the earth forever, we need to look at this from the standpoint of having the right methodology, the right way of going about it, because there's only one way that we're going to inherit the earth. And with that promise here of inheriting the earth, in Matthew 5, 5, comes an attitude of being meek, of being humble. So we have to recognize our spiritual poverty, what we lack. We have to mourn that, not only for ourselves, but for the entire world. That doesn't mean we can't laugh and cut up and kid each other. We can, but overall, behind the scenes, we have to understand that things on this earth aren't right. And God says, 
to go through the church, Jerusalem, and look for those that sigh and cry because of the abominations that are done, both in the church and in the world. So our overall attitude, and you know, this comes out all the time, when we in the church get together and start talking, usually we are not very far from lamenting the circumstances that this world is in and that the church is in, are we? That comes up usually pretty quickly. We're concerned about prophecy. We're concerned about things that are happening. We're concerned about what kind of world our children are living in, what kind of schools they're going to, and we lament the circumstance. So overall, an attitude has to pervade our thinking, and that is not of happy, happy, joy, joy all the time, but of mourning the situation that we're in. Now, if we understand our lack and we are frustrated and upset by it, then we need to look at the next verse, and that is meekness and humility as opposed to the antonyms, pride, vanity, ego, and so on. Now, let's quickly define this. I'm not going to go, as I said, into a lot of scriptures, a lot of verses about you should ought to be meek. There are many there. I checked them on the PC Study Bible this morning even and uh, could have written them down. We could go to all those. We did that quite a bit on morning last week, but I, that is, there's some other places I wanted to go today and use examples and answer some why questions as opposed to this is what you should be. Now, yes, we should. Uh, in Webster's, meek is defined as enduring injury with patience and without resentment or mild in attitude. Enduring injury, and don't we have injuries? Don't we have spiritual injuries that we're suffering as an overall church and individually? Don't we suffer injuries from others who might badmouth us or backstab us? And don't we get all excited about it and upset about it and frustrated about it and we're ready to call them out over it? That is not a meek attitude. A meek attitude will endure injury with patience and without resentment. When someone criticizes you, or you hear they've criticized you, what is your overall response? What is your immediate response? Is it carnal or is it spiritual? A meek attitude, which is what he says here is required to inherit the earth, will endure that with patience and not get resentful. Is there any room here for growth? Webster continues with a second definition. Deficient in spirit and courage. If you are criticized or injured in some way, do you have an immediate spirit of response that is an attack mode? Or is a don't put me down, I'll put you down mode. In other words, a defensive mechanism in you. Or are you deficient in that type of spirit? Naturally, we want to defend ourselves. Naturally, we want to put the other person on the defensive. Naturally, 
We want to make sure our self-image of us being good, because we know we should ought to be good, is maintained. It also means submissive. Third definition, not violent or strong, moderate, in other words. Are your reactions violent or strong to defend self? Well, that's the normal, carnal, average human reaction. It is my natural reaction, your natural reaction. But we're supposed to put on Christ. And he says here that we should be meek. All right, what about humble? Again, from Webster's, because meek and humble are, after all, essentially synonyms. You might be able, through the Greek, the Hebrew, and through the English dictionary, to find uh, hairline differences and shadings of meaning between humble and meek. I, I don't want to go there today and split hairs. Essentially, overall, they have the same meaning. Humble, Webster says, is not proud or haughty, not arrogant or assertive, not pushy is another word for assertive, or arrogant, thinking your opinion, your attitude, your knowledge is automatically better than someone else's because, after all, it's yours. That makes it better because it's yours. You have that attitude, and you will defend that attitude because it's yours. That's part of our empirical self, isn't it? Part of what we are. Um, another, a second definition, reflecting, expressing, or offered in a spirit of deference or submission. It is not our natural reaction to defer to someone else, to accept their view or their attitude, or to say, thank you, I'll think about that one. That is not natural at all. What is natural is to defend and push whatever we think is right. Offered in a spirit of deference, esteeming others higher than self, as Paul puts it, I think, in Thessalonians or Ephesians. Uh, third definition, ranking low in a hierarchy or scale. Now, meekness and humility are attitudes. They're states of mind is what they are. So in your mind or in your attitude, you should rank low in a hierarchy. And what is human and what is natural is to rank ourselves above whomever it is we are talking to or about. We automatically rank our opinion and ourselves higher than someone else. Well, that's just his opinion. Well, what about your opinion? Many times we say that's just his or her opinion, and all we're do doing is voicing what? our opinion. But we are able to say it vehemently because it's whose opinion? It's our opinion. 
That makes it automatically better than their opinion. Now, if you've got nine or twelve or fifty people to analyze that person's opinion and your opinion, you might not always come out on top. Those people might say, well, wait a minute, I like their opinion better than yours. I, there's room for that, isn't there? But not in your mind. It's automatically better because it's yours. Now that's a normal carnal reaction. It's not a spiritual reaction. And God says that the carnal and the fleshly cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That it has to be the spiritual which inherits the kingdom of God. So if we're reacting carnally, we have to put that aside and learn to react spiritually. Uh, one of the definitions to go with humble is too humble, that is a verb, to destroy the power, independence, or prestige of. Now, in our minds, we have power, independence, and prestige. Such expressions as a legend in his own mind come from that attitude because we can look at someone and say they have a pretty high opinion of themselves. That's a pretty common expression, isn't it? So-and-so sure has a pretty high opinion of himself. To humble ourselves means to get rid of the prestige of ourselves. You see, this goes hand-in-hand hand with spiritual poverty and mourning over what we do not have. Let's go briefly then to the Hebrew. The word meek is used several times in the Old Testament. It comes from 6035, awe, which means to depress figuratively in mind, that is, be gentle, or circumstances, needy, especially jointly. So the Hebrew word for meek means to understand our own neediness instead of our own greatness. It means to be gentle of mind rather than mean-spirited or vain and lifting the self up. It is translated humble, lowly, meek, or poor in the King James Version. In the Greek, it means basically the same thing. There are several different Greek words used uh, it means mild or humble, basically. Uh, it's used to, well, it's, it's translated as mild or humble. But it means to abase, bring low, humble, or to depress, figuratively, to humiliate. To bring down from a lofty perch, in other words, to a lower branch. So God is saying our lofty attitudes have to be gotten rid of our pride, our ego. Now, Christ never got to first base with the Pharisees, did he? He continually upbraided them. Now, they knew the law, didn't they? They were well-versed in it. They knew the Old Testament very well. Some of them probably had memorized the whole thing. But they did not understand the spiritual. Why? Because of attitude. 
It was constantly their attitude that he decried. Their attitude of selfishness, their attitude of wanting to gain for self, the self-centeredness they used, and the misuse of their authority, which has been done modernly in the church as well, for self-gain, for self-generated purposes. They were willing to lie, cheat, steal, do anything to gain their end. And they were willing to use religion and the Bible in order to do it. Because the people believed in God, and the people believed in synagogue, and they believed that the leadership would lead them to God. But the leadership failed them and led them to the leadership to enrich them. That was their goal and their purpose. Wrong goals, wrong purposes. Now they put on a show of looking good on the outside of the cup, but didn't wash the inside of it. As long as they could look good to the people around them, so that those people would give them honor, respect, obedience, and money, that's all they cared about. There were all kinds of evil things going on inside their heads, but the people couldn't see that. So they were only concerned about how they looked on the outside. And Christ got after them about their self-righteous, self-centered attitudes over and over and over again. But you know what? They never changed their attitudes, and as a result, they never became righteous. So when he begins working with these men and teaching them what is required to run a church, to be a part of the kingdom of God ultimately because he knew ahead of time he was going to someday make them apostles he would begin a movement through them through his spirit his power, his mind to do something on earth that had never been done before and they need to be properly prepared they needed knowledge but knowledge does you no good unless you have the right attitude to go with it the Pharisees had a great deal of knowledge, but it was gaining them nothing in heaven. They were seeking treasure on earth, and they were getting no treasure in heaven, even though they called on God. They were using God in that sense, and they were using the church in that sense for their selfish purposes. Totally irresponsible totally uncaring and totally unloving. Now, I'm sure they acted loving. I'm sure they smiled sweetly. I'm sure they patted people on the back because that's part of the outward show. But what's really happening inside? So Christ here is letting these men know before he ever gets to knowledge and teaching about the law or conduct or anything else that they had to have the right attitude. Without that, the law would do them no good, even as it did the Pharisees no good. Wouldn't have had any positive fruits at all. I think that's enough on the definition of meek. We've talked about meekness and humility. We've gone to a lot of scriptures in the last few sermons showing how God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. 
and so on and so forth. So we're well aware of those. But we need to make an application to today and to what is going on in a very real sense in order that it might benefit us more than you should oughta, but so that we might ask some questions like, why? What good does it do? What are we supposed to being, be producing? Now, on Pentecost, I touched on, I think, a little different understanding of the meaning of Pentecost, and that is was to show, overall, that the reward of the first fruits comes at the first resurrection. So Pentecost is about the first fruits as well, but since it doesn't picture the reward, it must picture something that comes before the reward. Now, let's use the example, since he uses first fruits, of a tree that is there to produce fruit. Let's say it's a peach tree. That peach tree has been designed to produce peaches. So everything from the root up in that tree is programmed with that goal in mind. Nice, big, plump, tasty, juicy, golden peaches. That's the purpose of that tree. And every fiber, every cell of that tree is designed to produce that peach. Now, when you come to that peach tree, late summer, you're not looking for a knotty, dried up little green thing that didn't grow, or a shriveled up knotty thing on the ground that fell off. You are looking that time of year for something about that big around that has a red spot and the rest is gold, and when you touch it, it has a slight softness to it, so you know when you bite through that fuzzy skin, some people won't even eat a peach because it's fuzzy. they got to peel it. That didn't matter to me. I want juice to my elbow when I pull that thing off the tree, and I want it all down my shirt front because I'm picking peaches. And after a while, some will go in the bucket. But that's what I'm anticipating. South Carolina grew some of the finest peaches on earth. We lived there for a while. And that was one of the fortunate parts of living there, is that every late summer, on would come the peaches. You could go pick them by the bushel baskets full, gently lay them in there, and hope they didn't get bruised to take home and nosh on and can. Beautiful, tasty things. But that's the kind I looked for on the tree. Didn't want any unripe, didn't want any bird pecked, didn't want any that weren't edible right then. Wanted to enjoy it. Now, when I wanted to go into the orchard and pick peaches, I wanted the first resurrection. What I was after. I wanted it fully ripe and ready, everything done, everything finished from that tree. I didn't want the byproducts. I didn't want anything that was inferior. I wanted the resurrection. Didn't care what the tree had been through. Didn't care when it had been watered. Didn't care what kind of manure had been put on it. Didn't care anything about anything but the resurrection. 
Maybe this will make clear what I was trying to say on Pentecost. Some thought I was just trying to say we have a long time to go. No, I wasn't. Didn't have that in mind at all. I was trying to explain a work that needs to be done to produce something ready to eat at the resurrection. Now, if you're going to take a bud on a tree, pollinate it, baptize it, lay hands on it, let it receive the Holy Spirit so that it can grow, then it has to go through a procedure and a process through the spring and summer so it is right, so it is useful. The first resurrection, I think, pictures the ripe peach of the first fruits. The tree has produced something that is now perfect, ready for use. So since Pentecost comes before that and is still talking about the first fruits, it can't picture that which is completely ready because that isn't ready till the resurrection. It has to picture something that comes before. What comes before ripeness and perfection? Growth, preparedness, ripening. I mean, starting with budding and being pollinated and prepared and starting out very small and useless, it has to grow and grow, and then the ripeness has to come, and it's ready then to harvest and eat. So the whole analogy here shows that you have a job to do. Now Christ used the analogy of him being the vine and us the branches in John 15. It's essentially the same thing. First fruit, let's say on a tree, be it a peach or an apple or whatever, or a grape on a vine. Now, he is the main trunk of the vine. He's what all the branches are attached to in this analogy. Now, what produces grapes? <coughs> is it the main stem? In one sense, yes. Without the main stem, any branches that are there wither and die and produce nothing. They've got to be connected. So ultimately, that main stem, and he's the root and branch of David as well, the root up through the stem represents Christ. But we're the branches attached to him. What is it our job to do? Produce big, plump, ripe, juicy grapes. That's what our job is to do. There's a process involved, isn't there? That's the job. It is there to do. Okay, nice analogy. But what does it mean to us? What does it mean today to you and to me? What are we supposed to be producing? You say fruit, you say peaches, you say grapes. Sounds wonderful, sounds sweet, makes me salivate. But what does it mean to us as Christians? It means that we have to produce something that is of value when it is ripe to any who might come to pick it, to taste of it, to enjoy it, to receive what from it? Nutrition, pleasure, enjoyment, 
health, strength, energy. Isn't that what food gives you? Our job is to produce something for someone else. That's what our job is. Romans 12.1 tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Uses a different analogy. It's not fruits, not peaches, not grapes. But referring to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament where they had animal sacrifices that had their throats cut in order to provide benefit to someone else, whether it be forgiveness or a sweet savor or whatever it might have been in a particular sacrifice, that animal had to die. Christ himself came and died for what? For himself? Not at all. Totally, utterly selfless. He was not self-centered whatsoever. <coughs> he came to give everything he had for you and for me and for the whole world. He kept nothing back. Didn't defend himself. Put his own value lower than anyone else on earth. Think about that. He valued on that stake his life, his being, his mind, his thoughts, lower than the lowest trailer trash pond scum on earth. That is how he valued himself at that point. Because he sacrificed himself for the worst sinner who ever walked or crawled on this earth. That is total abasement. That is total humility. Total lack of pride, arrogancy, vanity, or self. <clears throat> you can't get any lower than that. None of us can get lower than our Savior. He made himself lower than anyone. Now you, I, might look upon different parts of society out there and we may value ourselves higher than druggies, hookers, male prostitutes, thieves, liars, murderers, mightn't we? We might think we're better than some of those people. It's all in the self-assessment. What did Christ try to get across to the Pharisees? This harlot has a better chance of being in the kingdom of God than you Pharisees standing here quoting pious, religious-sounding, godly things in your white robes with long phylacteries than you do. A harlot forgiven is in a whole lot better condition than you are. Rahab was a harlot, low-down, mattress-back whore, what she was. She repented of it, changed. She's going to be in the first resurrection. She obviously grew somewhere along the line. She changed her attitude about everything. 
Rahab is held up in Hebrews 11 as one of the finest examples of a human being who has ever lived on this earth. Imagine that. The Pharisees are written down historically as some of the worst people who ever walked the face of the earth. Christ called them serpents, sons of snakes, hypocrites. Every despicable thing you might call someone, Christ called the Pharisees. Now they were thought of as society as being the bright leaders. That's the way society, and especially they, looked upon themselves. But God has a totally different way of looking at things than normal human way of looking at things. Rahab has been exalted as a ripe, beautiful peach ready to marry Jesus Christ. She's come a long way in God's estimation from what she was in Jericho to what she is today, lying in her grave waiting to marry our Savior. The Pharisees have a totally different outlook. They never became humble in mind, never repented, never recognized their spiritual poverty, didn't mourn their condition, never became meek, and never even got to first base. You can read anything you want in Matthew and through the whole New Testament about the Pharisees, and there's nothing good said about them. They will not be in the first resurrection. See how much attitude plays? Rahab the harlot simply believed that there was a God. She believed those men represented God, and she believed if they said that, they would, that she would be protected if she protected them, that it would happen. Simple belief. How hard is simple belief in God to come by? Simple faith that your health, your wealth, everything left in God's hands will in the long run benefit you. How hard is that to come by? What did Christ say? When I return, will I find faith, belief, trust on the earth? It will be a very, very rare commodity. Only a very, very few will believe the things we read in this book and follow God's way. The whole world will follow Satan's way They'll be deceived. They'll follow the beast. Incredible, isn't it? That so few will simply believe God and then do what he says. Why do we wrestle so hard, brethren, with when God tells us certain things about our diet, things that are good or bad for us, and we have minds that we can apply principles, but we don't because we're what? We're arrogant, we're selfish, we want to do what we want to do and what appeals to us, what is customary for us, what is tradition for us, what we like. So even though the whole world is beginning to realize that we are living in a polluted environment, 
that is feeding us garbage, we don't think it has any meaning. It's easy for us to put aside the, God, the fact that God said our body is the temple of his Holy Spirit and we ought to take care of it because of what we like for us. So we will set aside some of the grandest, greatest spiritual principles so we can indulge ourselves in what we like. We have no simple trust in God that his way is best. He has called us to total separation from this world. I was in a position yesterday where someone needed some attention. They felt in a hospital, so I took them there. And while we were there in the emergency room waiting for assistance, I was listening to the radios in the emergency room. And in came a call that there was this three-year-old diabetic. I'm talking three years old now. Serious diabetes problem, taking insulin three times a day. I mean, they were, whoever was calling in was sounded like a emergency care unit, ambulance or whatever, uh, describing to the ones there to prepare them for what was coming. Three years old, three times a day insulin, in a critical condition, in other words, facing death very soon, maybe that day, if it did not get the attention it needed. Three years old. There are people today who are born with diabetes, people who are born with cancer, people who are born with health, with heart problems, with AIDS, with all kinds of diseases because of the sins of the parents. Now, the whole world, apart from religion or God, understands that diabetes comes from refined sugars, refined flowers, refined foods, junk, that are not food, but they're junk. The whole world understands that. Clinton's just made a name for himself by getting legislation passed that will remove pop from schools. Now, Clinton is about as godless as anybody on earth. But even he grasps that there's something wrong with things people are putting in their bodies. but try to convince people that God doesn't want them putting junk in their bodies and they will brush it aside as if it has no meaning whatsoever. If Clinton says don't do it, oh, okay. If God says don't do it, oh, wait a minute, now that's not spiritual. If it comes from God... It has automatic resistance built in. Where is simple faith and trust? That God knows the best way and that we ought to be following the best way. Now, I'm going to be building to something here. Let's depart from peaches and grapes and sacrificed animals for a moment 
and use another example. Let's say NASA is preparing a rocket to put satellites up in the air, to orbit around the Earth. Now, those rocket ships can cost hundreds of millions of dollars, more money than you and I can even begin to understand. Hundreds of millions of dollars. They are intricately designed, and when they are designed, there is always the fearful specter in the minds of the engineers and designers that something could go wrong and, like Challenger, could blow up, kill a lot of people, and waste an awful lot of money and make them very embarrassed because what they produced didn't work. There is fear that a tile might come off of a nose cone and Equipment might be destroyed, might burn up in the atmosphere because of the heat of reentry. There are all kinds of fears. When I lived in Florida, I went up to watch a few launches, Cape Canaveral at the time, and there was always a great deal of tension before a launch, and they were doing hundreds and thousands of tests before they would ever give the go-ahead to launch that rocket. Great fear of failure, great fear of loss, of reputation and money and everything else. Great fear of falling behind the Russians. There were all kinds of fears involved. You talk about high-pressure jobs. Designing and launching those missiles were the pressure cooker compared to what you think is pressure on your job. So they tested, and they tested, and they tested, and they would cease the count if any little thing was wrong and start all over and test and test and change parts and do whatever they needed to do. And then even when they gave the go-ahead and 10, 9, 8, 7 came and 0, and it blasted off, some of them were still testing, testing, testing. They were testing ignition. They were testing first stage. They were testing all kinds, testing trajectory, testing everything to make sure nothing went wrong, praying nothing would go wrong and it would be successful. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't work. Sometimes, well, she blew up, boys, back to the drawing board. Got egg on our face, let's spend a few or hundred million and try to figure this one out. They didn't want to hear Houston we have a problem. Didn't want to hear it. Now, do you think God is any less carefully involved in what he is doing? If NASA could use thousands of people, hundreds of millions of dollars, and all the brain power they could find to get something that'll go up in the air and circle a few times. How much attention to detail do you think God has in transforming a very human being into God? He is so deeply concerned with each and every one of us and our potential that he counts the hair on our head.
Not one barn sparrow falls to the ground that God is not aware of. If he counts your hair, he has a pretty deep interest in you. How many women, before they married their husband, counted his hair? Now, they may have rejected some who had bald domes, but when they settled on one, I don't think anybody was so absolutely concerned that they wanted to be sure they knew exactly how many hairs he had on his head before they'd go to the altar with him. And I don't know any man who ever counted the hair on a woman's head before he'd marry her to be sure that there were the right number of hairs there, that they were growing properly, and whether they had dandruff at the roots or not. Doubt anybody's ever done it. But God knows how many you've got on your hair, head, at any time. Now that's pretty detailed. Do you think for a moment that God would start this process of bringing us from nothing to a ripe first fruit at the first resurrection without running some tests, without checking all the systems out, without finding out if we would indeed call up and say, Houston, we have a problem here. <laughs> you know, if you have an angel assigned to you, does he dial God up and say, you know, I think we've got a problem here. I could recite you very quickly an example of that. Try Zechariah 3. Joshua there is represented as a brand jerked out of the fire so he wouldn't burn up. And the Lord said, I want to use this one for a job I have that needs done. And the angel protested. Said, wait a minute, I've been following this dude around. We, we got a problem here, Houston. The Lord rebuked Satan and told the angel, it's, you know, I'm, I'm in charge here. Everything's going to be all right. Do you think God doesn't check the systems? Do you think that he would allow Zechariah 3 to come to its ultimate conclusion? These things shall be if you diligently obey. Do you think he would allow this thing to go on unless diligent obedience were at some point accomplished? I rather doubt it. Because he himself said, that's what I have to have for this job to be done. So, what does Satan do? Not just with him, because Isaiah also says that we are all brands plucked out of the fire. And every last one of us has difficulties. Doesn't matter who we are. And we have Satan the devil going before the throne of God daily, accusing you and me, every one of us, by name. Did you see what Charles or Nelson or Andy or Sandy or whoever did today? 
Those demons and Satan are very aware of everything you and I are doing, and they can even read thoughts and minds too. And they go before God and they present their case about how you aren't what you ought to be. Right before the throne of God, daily. Is God concerned that all systems are working properly? Do you think that he would perform all kinds of tests to see? Or would he assume that everything's going to work perfectly? I don't think he assumes much. I think he wants to know. Remember Abraham's case with Isaac? I wonder if Abraham would do this. It might have been in God's mind as somewhat of a question. I've seen the man, and he's obeyed me. He's done what I've said. But if I asked him to go out and slit his son's throat, would he really do it? I suppose that the father and the son, or he who became the son, probably talked about that. They had analyzed Abraham. They had pondered his heart. They had pondered his actions. They had pondered his life said, you know, I think he would. I believe he would. But you know, I'm not absolutely sure. Let's tell him to do it. Oh, okay, that's a good idea, Dad. Let's see if he'll actually do it. Hey, Abe, got a little project for you. I want you to go up on Mount Moriah. I want you to tie your son down. I want you to slit his throat. Oh, okay. believed God. He believed God had his best interest in mind and Isaac's best interest in mind. He had heard the promises that through Isaac he would be like the sand of the sea or the stars in the heavens in progeny. He knew that. He'd been promised that. He believed that. So Abraham did not react carnally. He didn't say, hey, wait just a minute now. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You promised me that through Isaac I would have grandchildren as the sands of the sea. Now you want me to go kill him? Give me a break here. No, he just said, okay. I believe you. I trust you. You made these promises. I know you can make them happen. So if you tell me to cut his throat and let his blood run on the ground as a human sacrifice... I will do it. He didn't argue. It just says he saddled his ass, took Isaac, headed up the mountain, built an altar, put wood on it, laid his son on it. Don't know whether he tied him down or not. Took his knife out, ready to slice his throat, raised his arm to do it. And just as he raised his arm to do it, God said, Up! Oh, Wait a minute. Change the plan. <gasps> sure glad you came through. <laughs> I knew you would. And then what did God said to, say to Abraham? Now I know. No question here. All systems are working, Abraham. Got no problem here, Houston. This is going to work. God tested Abraham five, four, three, two.
two, one, and a half. Stop! Just in time. Abraham was to be the father of the faithful. We are to be some of the faithful, aren't we? Now, if the father of the faithful was tested, all his systems checked out, do you think for one moment that God will not check our systems out and see if everything is operable and ready to work before he launches whatever it is he's about to launch? I think we'd all have to agree with that. It's just that we don't like our tests. It's easy to read about Abraham a long time ago. It wasn't us. It wasn't our kid. Ours become very personal. Well, the first thing he's dealing here with is meekness and willingness to do whatever he wants done. Now, how do I draw that down to you and me today? I had someone yesterday who, if he were an automobile, pretty much totaled out. Not much left. I was visiting with someone who is a physical, financial, and emotional wreck, essentially, having experienced diabetes and its complications for 14 years now, loss of some members of his body, a couple of toes gone at this point, and others threatened, loss of digestive system due to diabetes because the system's getting to where it doesn't work very well. Nerves aren't operating properly. It's a part of the diabetic syndrome. Given a little more time, I don't know how much, months or years, his digestive system's going to completely quit, and he's going to die. He's going to lose more toes, more feet, legs, eyes, nerves. Got to the hospital with him. He hadn't noticed he had blisters on the outside of his right leg. The nurse said, where'd you get these blisters? What blisters? Don't worry about any blisters. Sure enough, he had a big crop of blisters on his right leg. Got to thinking about it. He had sat near the heater. Burned his skin to the point of blistering and never felt it because of the deadness of the nerves as a result of diabetes. Hope you enjoy your Snickers and your pop. You may have some terrible times ahead. So he's a physical wreck as a result of the diabetes and increasing inability to maintain a job and have gainful employment, he's become a financial wreck. And even the retirement that has been built up over many, many years was cut in half when his wife and family deserted him. She divorced him and as a result took half his retirement, which wasn't very big to start with, and now isn't enough to live on. So here's someone who is a physical wreck, who is now, partly as a result of that, a financial wreck, and as a result of divorce and 
children and wife turning away from him is also going through a great deal of emotional distress and is therefore an emotional wreck. So if you were in an automobile, you'd have to call it pretty much totaled, right? That person came here a few months ago seeing that we understood the truth now about Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread, that most of the church simply will not even approach to recognize. But he saw that it was true. And the main reason, he says, he came here was because of that truth that we have. But yesterday, having been nauseated now for days because of digestive difficulties, dry puking in a pail, fainting when he stands up because of issues related to diabetes, most of the time can't stand. Stands up, faints, falls on ground. Knees all scarred up as a result. Some of you have gone around this place picking him up off the ground. So far, he's always revived. When laying down, he has enough blood pressure that he revives. Driving him to town yesterday, had difficulties because he nearly fainted on me several times. So some of you understand that here is a situation that's difficult. As we sat in his place yesterday, he was utterly, totally helpless. See, no hope, no way out, having great difficulty understanding why, trying to obey, trying to do what's right, trying to eat right, trying to do the things I ought to do, and I'm sitting here so nauseated, I keep throwing up. That's part of this is implied, part of it was said describing the circumstance to you. I'm sitting there beside him, and he said, why am I here? Why did God bring me here? It's a serious question. Why am I right here? What is the purpose? And in many respects, I was at a loss to tell him individually, specifically, why he was sitting there. Now, I understand overall the purposes and the reasons that we are doing what we are doing, but for him to sit there and very seriously, quietly ask, why am I here? What is God doing? Brought a lump to my throat. And I felt at a total loss to say anything that might give him understanding that would make him suddenly feel better and jump up and down and be happy. Because he's in a very sad, wretched situation. We talked on a little bit, sat there a while, didn't say much, both of us praying a little bit, quietly, he audibly a couple of times, just total helplessness. God, what's this about, was the attitude. 
sat there a little while longer. He looked me straight in the eye and said, Help. Very low, very pitiful. Waited a while and said, Help. And I'm saying to myself, How can I help? What can I do? Bringing him some water wouldn't help. Bringing him a fresh pan to puke in wouldn't help. How could I help? And how miserable, frustrated, lonely he was feeling. What could I say? What could I do that would actually alleviate that? Didn't know what to say. I'll pray. I don't know that that helped him a whole lot. Might have helped a little bit. Felt that someone else would pray for him. But it didn't alleviate the problem, didn't take the nausea and the pain away. I couldn't reach out and help. When I woke up this morning, answers began to come. Why did God bring that person here, him specifically? Now, we have talked about our job as a preparation crew, as those whom God has brought to begin something that he could augment and add to later on to prepare a place that he might begin to gather his people from all over the earth together as a place that would become an example for the rest of the world who's going to follow the beast and for the rest of the church. We'll read about that a little later on in Matthew 5. <coughs> I don't want to go there today for sake of time, which we're running out of here fairly soon. But let's understand we're here to do something. We're here to build a town, which we've been doing now for three years. And we've almost got it done as far as having the entity here, having it done, the utilities and the things that are needed to be that. And we've even taken a formal step to be called a township or a town. So we've had to work hard in the sun and in the cold rain to build roads and lay pipeline and drill wells and the things that we've done here. Build buildings, remodel houses, old mobile homes and various things that we've done. We've gone through a lot of privations. We've lived in less than stellar conditions while we've made things better. We've had to sacrifice a lot. Mates, maybe. Children, homes, lands, jobs, so-called security, to come here to do what a job that God needs done. But now, this individual I'm speaking of came here, in a sense, at the tail end of that, 
and came here with no physical capacity to help us build a town. So then why? <coughs> Ties in with what we've been talking about. We've got something here maybe nearly ready to launch. But if God has decided that what we have done here is worthwhile and that he wants to use us as servants to those who will come, what does he need to do? <coughs> he, knoweth, he needs to know if all systems are working and if all systems are go. He needs to know if we are done with self-interest and are willing to sacrifice our lives, our time, our energy, our thoughts, to take care of others. Maybe he sent this individual here as a test for us. When the church has finally been fully scattered, shattered, and people are in utter confusion and the financial collapse comes, and the church organizations are destroyed as a result of that and other things, and people are wandering, dazed, shocked and confused, automobile carcasses totaled out, if you will, they will need a place of reprieve someone to take care of them, someone to heal the hurts, someone to scrape up the blood off their faces. When the first fruits ultimately have fulfilled their job and have become ripe and usable and worthwhile as fruit, they will be changed into immortal beings and their abilities maximized and multiplied many times over to be able to take in a totaled out world that is pitiful, that has been totally decimated, that is barely surviving through famine, pestilence, war, slavery, death, totally bewildered and shocked, and needing everything not even knowing what to ask for because everything they have known has been destroyed before their eyes. And all they'll be able to say is, help, help me, that's all. If God is going to launch that program, he has to have some systems checks ahead. We are to be a forerunner. We are to be a microcosm to help the church after it is scattered and shattered. And then that remnant, combined with those who are, the, who are in the faithful of Hebrews 11 and in the New Testament, all those first fruits from Adam and Eve on down to the first resurrection are going to be resurrected and ready to be used by the world, willing to be used up, willing to sacrifice 
time, energy, and everything else for someone else. They're not going to have an attitude of, well, I don't think I want to clean wounds today. I think really somebody else ought to do that. I don't think I ought to clean human manure off of backsides and down legs and on the floor today. Maybe someone else should do that. It's kind of beneath what I had in mind for the day, if you please. People who went on battlefields as orderlies, as nurses, as doctors, had a lot of blood, shattered bones, human manure, puke, and blood to have to sort through. And it takes a certain willingness to give of self, a certain, what would you say, putting aside of the five senses, what I smell, what I feel, what I see, in order to help someone else. We have to put aside what we might see, feel, think, and want and what might be happy or entertaining or fun for us today to help others. Now, if God is going to assemble thousands, which he says he is, a remnant, he has to have a people set aside and prepared to take care of those people, no matter what their condition might be. In the physical gore and blood and bone and manure, is sometimes easier to deal with than emotional, spiritual, shattered attitudes and minds. What's harder, setting a bone or setting a bad attitude? The attitude's much harder. We have to be spiritually prepared to take care of their spiritual needs and, as well, their physical needs. Isaiah 55, come, have milk and wine without price, without money. God is going to provide an Eden, a garden of God, Isaiah 51, 3, before the millennium, and that's what the context is, so that, that might be done. He's going to take care at some point of the physical. But do you think for a moment he is going to use you and me for that important a job, taking care of the remnant of his first fruits, unless we are ready for the job. Do you think he is going to resurrect us in the first resurrection, unless we are ready to serve the world? This world has a different view of leadership than God does. To this world, leadership means jet airplanes and perks and fine meals and nice hotels for self. With God, leadership is cleaning bedpans, taking care of people's needs, encouraging them when they're down, supporting the weak, and helping. We must be ready according to how God wants it done. And he's going to test to see if the system's ready. Maybe we have the physical plant pretty well done and almost ready to launch. 
But what about our attitudes and our spirit and our approach? Is that also ready? Do you think that God would bring thousands of people here for us to be host to and hostesses and take care of unless we have ready minds and willing hearts and hands to do the job? Do you think for one moment he would not test to see if all systems are go? Maybe he would allow one of us to have difficulties, suffer and die in our arms, as we have had recently. Maybe he would send us one who is already basically a human wreck. Don't take that wrong. I mean, just looking at the circumstances financially, physically, emotionally, he sent us somebody, in that sense, it's a wreck, and he willingly admits so and recognizes all I need is help of some kind, some way, somehow. Do you think God is going to give us the job of helping thousands unless we're ready to do it? And do you think he would go ahead and launch it without testing the systems first? I think that man was sent here as a test. Where are our hearts? Where are our minds? Now everything in the right balance. Everyone needs to do what he can for himself. That's what the rod and the ply of plumb line are all about. To be sure that everyone is taking care of his or her responsibility. But sometimes there are things people simply cannot do for various reasons. And we are here to learn wisdom, understanding, and love in order to know how much to do for someone, how much not to do. If we err at all, it ought to be on the side of too much rather than too little, because mercy is something that endures forever in God. But we have to set aside vanity, ego, self-desire, self-interest, self-goals, and submit ourselves to God's goals. Now, I didn't go through a lot of scriptures on meekness today to show that we should ought to be meek. I'm using a Pequen example of a test that may be before us right now, today, of someone who has been sent to test to see if all systems are ready. If we fail this test, we have other growth to do, and we may have other tests. I don't think God would do something important with us unless we're humble and meek, submissive and ready. I was going to go, and I don't have time, maybe I won't even mention where I was going to go, I'll consider whether I should go there next week. <coughs> But let's suffice it to say for today, we're here to help. We're here to learn how to help. We don't know how, we've got to learn how. But our attitude has to be, first of all, there to be willing. You know, it doesn't do any good to know how unless you're willing. Attitude comes first. If we have the right attitude and we show our willingness, then we need to learn how to help. 
So there were two very important questions asked of me yesterday. Well, a question and a plea. Why am I here? And a plea of help. Having thought about those, I don't think it was any accident or just happenstance or coincidence that those things were brought to my attention yesterday and I woke up with what I think are the correct solutions in mind. Not for me, but they were just there when I woke up this morning and started thinking. I think they came from God because I think He is planning on using us if we are usable. Our attitudes are right, and then we get the know-how, He will use us. But He will also test us and find out if we're ready. Now that man may have been sent here as a test for us. He may also have things that he has to go through as well so that he may be a part of us and be useful when it comes through healing or however God chooses to do it. We can pray for him and we can also prepare ourselves. So you should not just ought to be meek. There are reasons God is going to let the meek inherit the earth. And we are going through the first fruits growth stage to be ripe and ready. There are some physical jobs that need to be done before the first resurrection. There are some church jobs that need to be done. We are called, I believe, to be a part of that. But we have to be the kind of help and assistance that is godly. Not worldly leadership, but godly leadership. And that has to do with our attitudes. The meek will inherit the earth. Let's be among them.